Today we are covering a case that has an ending almost too weird to be true, a story of violence, justice, and revenge that will leave people divided. This is the story of two men from completely different backgrounds that probably wouldn't have crossed paths in the real world had it not been for the tragic and brutal circumstances that pushed one man to the point of bloodlust. This is the story of Donald Peewee Gaskins and Tony Simo. Howdy strangers, I'm Jordy. And I'm Brad. And welcome back to another episode of Beers with Queers. We're on week five, so it's hard to believe we're already five weeks into this. Time really does fly by. Yes, it does. So today's case is going to be an interesting one because as you may have already guessed by the title, this is actually part one of a two-part case. So our first two-parter. And we didn't set out for it to be two parts, but just the more research I was doing, the research papers just kept getting longer and longer and longer until it was about 40 pages worth of notes. And, you know, there's just no rational way to fit all of that into a single episode. Because I, for me personally, I think the sweet spot for podcasts is like right around the one hour mark, you know, not too long, not too short. And if, cause if it's too long, I f- find my ADHD brain makes my mind wander. And so, uh, we try to find the little sweet spot right in there. So you are going to be getting two parts. For free. For free. And you're not going to have to wait a whole week for part two. So part one's actually getting released on Monday, and part two will get released on Wednesday. So you get two two episodes this week. So let's buckle up our let's buckle our seatbelts because today's case is a wild one. It involves everything from robbery to one of the most horrific serial killers in history. To a man who decided to take justice into his own hands. So let's just jump right into it. On the night of March 18th, 1978, in Murals Inlet, South Carolina, two teenage girls wandered into a local two-pump gas station owned by a well-known and beloved elderly couple named Murdy and Bill Moon. The two walked in looking to buy some snacks for the night, but instead stumbled upon a gruesome scene. Meanwhile, just half a mile away, a bricklayer by the name of Tony Simo was relaxing in his trailer after a long day's work, sitting on the couch watching TV. But his peaceful night at home was soon interrupted by the blood-curdling scream of his sister from outside. She warned him that the shop their parents owned had just been robbed. Now, the shop was literally just a half mile down the road from where the entire Moon and Simo family lived, So Tony raced over as fast as he could, and when he finally reached the store, he was greeted to a horrific sight. Tony's mother and stepfather, Murdy and Bill Moon, were lying on the floor, covered in blood and motionless. Both had been shot. I looked over the counter, and my mother and father were lying in a pool of blood. My mother had a hole in her chest big enough to stick my fist through. I felt her pulse, but she didn't have any. Neither did my dad. All I could feel was my own heart pounding and the cash register was open, Tony would later tell investigators. 
Now, Tony discovered a spent shotgun shell near his mother's corpse and began to search for the other one, but he couldn't find it. So he hopped into his pickup truck and took off searching down every back road looking for his parents' killer or killers. And the whole time he couldn't help, he couldn't understand who would want to kill his parents in the first place because both of them were very kind and loved by the entire town. And it was even noted that oftentimes Bill would generously give people items from the store if they couldn't afford it. So these were two people, you know, they were retired. They were just trying to give back to their community and they were brutally murdered for no apparent reason. So Murdy and Bill married in 1950 at 19 years old. Bill was actually a retired Air Force sergeant and did several tours in Vietnam In total, he served 20 years in the military before retiring. Murdy already had a son from a previous relationship, Tony, but Bill quickly adopted Tony and raised him as his own, and the couple would go on to have three daughters. Now, all of them lived within a half mile of each other and were very, very close. At one point, Tony was actually out of work and unable to support his wife and kids, so his parents took them in and cared for them until Tony was better. So, this is a family that... uh, A very close family. A tight-knit family. And it actually didn't take long for police to find the couple's killer. Just a few hours after the discovery of the the moon's bodies, police were called to a home just a mile from the store and murder scene. It was the home of 18-year-old Carlton Davis, whose dad called police fearing that something bad had happened after Carlton and his 18-year-old friend Rudolph Tyner returned to the house. After questioning the two teens, both were arrested Rudolph was read his rights five times before being taken to the police station and strip-searched, where a spent shotgun shell fell out of his pocket. The two teens quickly confessed and told investigators exactly what had happened that night. Around 9.30 p.m., Murdy and Bill were preparing to close up shop when the two boys, Rudolph and Carlton, entered the store. Carlton stood lookout while Rudolph pointed a shotgun at the couple and demanded all of their money. But Bill flat out refused and said no, like a badass, because remember, he's a retired Air Force sergeant, so he's he's used to not taking anyone's shit. Now, Rudolph would later say that he only meant to scare Bill and thought that if he shot him in the arm, then he would hand over the money. But I'm assuming he doesn't know how a shotgun works. I was fixing to say he had a shotgun. That's not how that works. Yeah, so when he fired directly at Bill, he died instantly. Now, Murdy began to scream in horror, and so not wanting to leave witnesses, Rudolph also shot her before taking $200 from the register and fleeing the scene. So all of this was literally over $200. Rudolph would be charged with first-degree murder and Carlton as an accomplice to murder. Now, news of the murders and arrest of the two teenage suspects quickly spread throughout the small town. Public outrage was so great that a public defender actually quit in order to avoid having to defend Rudolph Tyner which the Moon and Sema family actually hired as their own attorney. By August of that year, both teens would be put on trial. It was also quickly discovered that Rudolph had actually cashed a check and made a small purchase at the Moon store just the day before, which prosecutors argued was a clear sign that he was scouting it out and that this crime was premeditated, and that meant they were wanting the death penalty. However... Tyner's defense began to argue against the death penalty as several tests performed on Tyner showed that he had an IQ of 80 and that he did not have the mental capacity. He had the mental capacity of a seven-year-old 
and thus was unable to understand his rights or the charges against him. So his mother would actually later testify that he suffered from a brain injury at eight, and that's what probably caused the learning disability. And Tyner himself would take the stand and say that he felt threatened to confess by the police after they made him strip naked, and his defense instead argued for life in prison. But a racially mixed jury wasn't buying it, and they soon found him guilty of two counts of first-degree murder and sentenced him to death by electric chair. Carlton Davis was also found guilty and sentenced to two counts of life in prison, and that seemed to be the end of it. Tony believed that justice had been served, his parents' killers would die, so he went back to his job as a brick mason and tried to pick up the pieces and continue to live his life. So the killers are arrested, they've been tried, they've been found guilty, they're sentenced to death, and that should have been that, you know? Something tells me it's not. Oh, it never is. But in 1979, just one year after the murder, the South Carolina Supreme Court ordered that Tyner be given a new trial on the grounds that prosecutors had biased jurors by telling them that any death sentence would be reviewed automatically. Tony heard the news on the radio and quickly drove home where he found his family weeping. One of his sisters told him, I just can't do it again, Tony. Tony then began to do research and discovered that no one had been executed in South Carolina since 1962. And then, even if Tyner is convicted and sentenced to death again, it would be decades before he was actually executed. Tony, who is often described as a soft-spoken and gentle man, who never even raised his voice, exploded. He began to punch holes in the wall and smash vases on the ground and decided right then and there that he needed to take care of it himself, and soon he began to spend his days forming different ways that he could kill Rudolf Tyner. Soon, Tyner's second trial began. Tony's sister Renee would later recall how hard it was to sit through it, saying, You go to court and you hear the facts over and over. You hear the taped confession about my mother screaming and begging to hear it over and over again. It was hard to look at Tyner and know that this was the person who killed them. You'd look over and he'd smile and grin at you. I feel like he was laughing at us. It's got to be super hard on the family. Oh, yeah, just to sit feet away from the person that took your loved one's lives away. You know, that in and of itself is just a form of torture. Especially when you think you've already got this done and over with, and then you've got to do it again. Oh, yeah, and, you know, every time there's a new trial, they have to bring back the evidence, the witnesses, the victim impact statements and stuff like that. So you are reliving this, the worst day of your life over and over again. So not long after the second trial began, it was quickly aborted when the judge ordered a change of venue in order to avoid a biased jury. So that would mean the trial would have to start all over again in a different location. It was uh, after this, it was announced, uh, it was after the second trial was a mistrial. Tony could not contain his rage anymore and attacked Tyner in the courthouse hallway as he was being let out. Police quickly grabbed Tony and held him held him back as he fought to get towards Tyner. Tony would later say that he was about to give up when he saw Tyner look him in the eyes and laugh. Tony broke free from the cops and kicked Tyner directly between the legs before cops were able to wrestle him back to the ground. I mean, if somebody killed my parents, I would be gunning for him as well. Yeah, you can't blame the man, and I don't think the cops did either. They're just like, look, man, we gotta, we have to do this, but if it was up to us, you could just have your way with him. Although the second trial again brought a guilty verdict and death sentence, 
Tony's rage was not satisfied as he knew it would be decades before justice was served. It also didn't help that rumors began to get back to Tony that Tyner was laughing and boasting about his crimes in prison on death row. So Tony swore on his mother's grave that he would settle the score. He would later say that he began to scour the bars around Myrtle Beach searching for shady characters and outlaws. Eventually, a co-worker of Tony's named Jack Martin put him in touch with an inmate at Central Correctional Institute named Gerald McCormick. Gerald knew the perfect guy for Tony's revenge plot who had the skills and willingness to do it. And that man was South Carolina's most notorious mass murderer, Donald Peewee Gaskins. Now, Gaskins was already serving a 900-year sentence and had avoided the death penalty because his lawyers exploited the same contested death penalty laws that had prevented Tony from seeing justice served in the first place. And with that, Tony Simo and Peewee Gaskins crossed paths and began to plot out the assassination of Rudolf Tyner. Now, Central Correctional Institute was also where Rudolph was being held, as it was the only prison where South Carolina housed all of their inmates on death row. By this point, it's 1982, and Tyner is still awaiting a ruling in his third death, sen- oh, his third death sentence appeal. In the meantime, this was actually purely by either some random coincidence or divine intervention, he was placed in a cell just opposite of Pee Wee Gaskins. Now you may already be now you may be wondering how he got his nickname Pee Wee. Can you guess? He's a little guy. He is very whittle. It's because he stood five two and weighed about a hundred pounds, soaking wet. Five two. That is a little guy. Now <laughs> he also had a very high pitched voice, and I'm not joking when I say that he sounds like Ernest from the Andy Griffith Show. And I'll actually put a clip up here of Pee Wee talking so you can hear it for yourself. Um, here, Hold on just a second. Who is Ernest from the Andy Griffith show? He's the um, the redneck boy they're always, the one that's like, how are you doing, Mrs. Wiley? I don't think his name's Ernest. I think, yeah. Yeah, it's Ernest. Ernest T. Bass. Yeah, right? Ernest T. Bass. Okay, I stand corrected. Wow. Shows how much you know about Andy Griffith. Maybe I'm not as Southern as I thought. But anyway... <laughs> to me, he sounds just like Ernest from the Andy Griffith show. So I'll actually put a clip up here of him talking. And this is him actually talking about an interaction he had with Tyner where he offered to kill Tyner because Tyner was complaining to him that he wanted to commit suicide. If he asked you to do anything he's supposed to do, I'm one that I don't let nobody tell me what I can do and what I can't do. I'm yelling at that. He's the one that used to come by my cell and talk about, you know, he was going to kill himself and all that. And I told him he wanted to die so damn bad. But he does sound like Ernest T. Bass from the Andy Griffith Show. Yeah, he um he seems pretty harmless on the outside. Very small, very high-pitched voice. Basically, Ernest Bass from the Andy Griffith Show. But please do not let that fool you. There's a reason he got the nickname The Meanest Man in America as well as being called the Redneck Charles Manson. And just to give you a small but chilling example of how mean he was, when Dr. Jim Beatty actually began visiting Pee Wee in prison in order to interview him so he could write a book about his life story, Jim noticed how Pee Wee's thumbnails were a, little, a lot longer than his other fingernails. Pee Wee asked Jim if he wanted to know why, and then proceeded to lean over, 
placed his hands on the doctor's face, and then stuck his thumbnails into the corner of his eyes, saying, see how easy it would be for me to just pluck them out? That's creepy. (laughs) And yeah, you let a convicted uh, mass murderer put their hands on your face. And now, of course, we're going to get into a lot more details about Gaskins and his crimes prior to his arrest in part two of the episode. But here's a just a brief rundown summary to give you an idea of how he ended up in here. Towards the end of 1975, Gaskins began to get looked at as a suspect in the disappearance of 13-year-old Kim Gelkin, who vanished in September of 1975. Eventually, police began to question Gaskins' known associates and friends, including a man named Walter Neely. Walter admitted that Gaskins had confessed to several murders to him, and on December 4, 1975, Walter led police to a piece of land near Gaskins' home where they discovered the graves of eight people. Yikes, he was a serial killer. Oh, just wait. Gaskins was arrested but only charged with one murder. On May 28, 1976, he was found guilty and sentenced to death. But... Due to a few legal technicalities, his case was sent for review to the U.S. Supreme Court. His case was thrown out, and it was decided that he would be given a new trial. However, before a new trial could even begin, Gaskins cut a deal with prosecutors in which he confessed to nine other murders on top of the eight already found. In exchange for leading them to the bodies, his death sentence was commuted to life in prison. So he, um, and we'll get more into it in part two, but he confirmed has at least 15 kills under his belt and most of them we'll learn are actually either family members or friends or associates so he killed people close to him he wasn't just some random murderer off the street now over time peewee actually began to build up a bit of a rapport with the guards at the prison and eventually he became a prison trustee he was seen as trustworthy and reliable and began to make repairs around a cell block as well as delivering mail and any other kind of grunt work, which gave him access to lots of tools and plenty of freedom to do what he liked and basically become a sort of pseudo-guard to the other inmates. So, you know, they kind of made a convicted mass murderer run the asylum, essentially. So, this allowed him to kind of get to know everybody, and that included Rudolf Tyner, The two quickly began a friendship and would often communicate with each other by yelling through the air vents that separated their cells. But of course, this was all just a ruse, and Pee-wee had already begun to plot out uh, Tyner's murder with Tony. And honestly, it didn't take much convincing for Pee-wee to agree to the the proposed murder plot anyway, as he already hated Tyner because Pee-wee was a very, very open racist and Tyner was African-American. Pee-wee also wanted $2,000 for the hit, so he's pretty cheap. Pretty soon, Tony and Pee-wee began to have long-distance phone calls on Sundays and started plotting out the murder. Tony would call from a friend's house in order to avoid the calls from being traced to his house, and Pee-wee would call posing as Gerald McCormick. Now, unknown to Tony, Pee-wee actually recorded several of these phone calls on a cassette tape in order to have insurance in case Tony attempted to not pay him his money. And please remember that, as that's going to play a very important role in part two. Well, the crazy thing is, one, they're not already taping the phone calls with a a mass murderer uh, anyway in prison. Two, he has his own tape recorder in prison 
to tape his own phone calls. Oh yeah, and the uh, he taped everything he did. He didn't just tape his phone calls with Tony. He taped like everything he did. They found like over five hundred cassette tapes in his cell. So the man was busy. Um, the two eventually settled on poison because being the best way to go about the murder. And Tony began to do research on the best poison to use. Often go into the local library to study up on poisonous plant plant. Poisonous plants, but I put a typo here and it says poisonous planets, but I meant poisonous plants and even called poison control to ask questions. So it's like, what would, um, in your expert opinion, what would you use to murder a man? Eventually, Tony settled on the leaves of an oleander bush. Oleander. Oleander bush. So you've heard of it. Which he was told a single leaf was enough to kill a small child. So Tony boiled down the leaves and extracted it with chloroform before mailing it to Gaskins. Gaskins told Tony that he poured the poison into Tyner's food, but all it did was make him sick. Tony then smuggled cyanide to Gaskins, hidden in the heel of a boot, but again, the attempt at poisoning also failed, and Tyner was still alive. Cyanide's pretty hard to fail with. I'm wondering how... Uh, either it wasn't enough, or Tyner is a uh, strong motherfucker. Gaskins was tired of the attempted poisonings, and instead told Tony that he wanted dynamite. He told Tony to get him as much dynamite as he could get, and hide it in the inside of a radio to mail it to him. After that, Gaskins would wire the radio to explode after Tyner plugs it into the wall and kill him. And so I'll also put here, this is an actual clip of Tony and Pee Wee plotting out the murder. And so you can hear it in real time as they discuss the best way to go about it. Plus, this guy's like a MacGyver. He's going to, like, trigger this radio to blow with dynamite. Mm-hmm. So... It's getting interesting. So, it's going to get real interesting here in just a second. So, with that, Tony did as instructed and got C4 explosives into a prison. So, that it's not just the fact that he's able to MacGyver this shit into a bomb. It's the fact that they even got it into a prison in the first place. But, you know... The 80s. They were a much, much more easier time, I guess. Yeah, it was a simpler time where you could just get C4 sent to you in the mail. So, on September 12th, 1982, 
Gaskins had a fellow inmate deliver a plastic cup with what appeared to be a radio built into it to Rudolph Tyner. Pee-wee told Tyner that he would have to plug the cup into the wire that Pee-wee managed to run through the air vent system over to his own cell and hold it up to his ear. The cup would act as an intercom system and they'd be able to talk to each other without having to yell through the vents. There's a lot going on at this prison and not a lot of people paying attention to what's going on. So that's exactly what Tyner did. He plugged the cup into the wire Pee-wee gave him and held it right up to his right ear. Gaskins then plugged his own end of the wire into the wall outlet. And with that, the homemade bomb went off directly next to Tyner's ear and almost completely blew his head off. And with that, Rudolph Tyner was dead at 23 years old. The blast was so brutal that they would later have to pick pieces of the radio out of Tyner's brain. And it also blew his hand off. Now, Gaskins quickly pulled the wire back through the vents before cutting it into pieces and flushing it down the toilet. The explosion shook the entire prison and left everyone stunned and confused as to what the fuck just happened. Upon discovering the gruesome scene, authorities initially believed Tyner's death was an accident caused by him accidentally setting off a bundle of match heads he had been collecting in an attempt to escape out of a cell. Those are some strong match heads. But they were about to learn the truth and uncover the story behind the only time in history where a death row inmate was murdered while awaiting execution. Pee Wee Gaskins would later say the last thing Tyner heard was me laughing. So the man is uh, inventive with the way he kills people. And with that, I think that's where we will close out part one. I know this is a bit of a much shorter episode, but you're going to get a jam-packed episode in part two on Wednesday. And in that, we're going to kind of rewind a bit and we're going to tell you all about Pee-wee's history because as you'll learn there is a reason he is called the meanest man in America and we'll also talk about you know the uh, fate of Tony Simo and what eventually became of Pee-wee Gaskins yeah it's a truly wild story though I mean he was a master manipulator Gaskins was getting multiple people under his spell and getting them to assist him in his criminal activities and he really was like the redneck Charles Manson because he got like a dozen people involved with all his crimes. Already he's made a bomb with a radio. He's got dynamite. There's a revenge story going on. It's got a little bit of everything in it. And I'm still like, okay, was this like a real prison or what? I mean. No, it was a real prison. (laughs) It was, um pretty lax with their serial killers but it was a real prison yeah he only killed 15 people i mean why wouldn't you trust him but who's counting so (laughs) where we stand right now is tony simo has finally fulfilled his thirst for revenge thanks to the help of convicted serial killer peewee gaskins his parents deaths are finally avenged with the death of their killer so the man was set on getting killing him and the fact that he managed to do that while he was on death row is crazy well the thing i'm gonna say is i think if i ended up having to go to prison i would want to die so i know everybody like trades out for their life and everything like that but like i think i would rather die than go to prison so 
it would almost feel to me like if I was wanting revenge for that guy to just stay in prison his whole life would be more revenge than a quick death. I definitely understand where that's coming from. But also, like, he, um, I didn't mention this, but he said in a few interviews, like, he just couldn't go to sleep at night knowing, like, his parents' killers in there just, like, living the life, being fed, being clothed. And he's, he's just, he's still breathing while his parents are. And he said that drove him absolutely crazy. And so he, um, he kept that promise that he swore in his mom's grave. And so with that... We will see you guys Wednesday. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Of course, please be sure to leave us a review and rate us five stars on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to us. It helps us out so much. And if you want to see photos from this case, you can follow us on Instagram at Beers with Queers Pod. That's P-O-D pod. Or on Facebook at Beers with Queers, a true crime podcast. See you guys in a few days. Stay dangerous out there. See you Wednesday. Bye.